This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. The Department of Justice is taking the position that, well, in both cases, the court recognized that the president is special. And we're arguing that the president is special. QED, we win. We're living in an age of impunity. And impunity, of course, is not just the fact that people do illegal things, but that they get away with it. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast on the courts and the law and the rule of law and the Supreme Court and many other things that have the word law in it. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover those topics for Slate. So this past week, the court was finally done with its real-time telephonic argument experiment. And now what looms for the remainder of the term are decisions that are pending in a slew of unbelievably important consequential cases. So we want to talk a little bit about the financial records cases that were argued last week. And we also want to reflect on how those real-time telephone arguments fared in terms of, well, justice to the justices themselves. And we're going to be talking to Leah Lippman uh, about that. There's also just some tea leaf reading that we can do while we wait for the decisions to come down. And Slate Plus members are going to get to hear from my co-jurisprudential tea leaf confederate, Mark Joseph Stern, on all of that. If you are not a Slate Plus member, you can always go to slate.com slash amicus plus to sign up. Slate Plus members are truly right now helping secure Slate's future, doing it one membership at a time. And if you can afford to join, we know times are hard, but if you can, we so truly appreciate it. Now, later on in the show, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're pretty intentionally on this show usually a little bit myopic. It is, after all, chiefly a podcast about the U.S. legal system. But sometimes we like to take a few steps back or jog a little bit sideways. I'm thinking, for instance, of our conversation with the Reverend Dr. William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign. And I always think we're better for it when we're just slightly outside of the narrow focus on U.S. courts and law. So we're going to spend a little time today with David Miliband. He's president and chief executive of the International Rescue Committee. And we're going to try to talk about the receding rule of law around the world, not just in the United States, the need for global leadership on questions of law and democracy, and maybe a little bit about how this pandemic that is tearing through the international community is helping to lay bare what fundamental democratic and rule of law weaknesses we all have globally. So first, we're going to turn to Leah Littman for a quick peek at the numbers behind telephonic arguments, and we're going to try to do a wrap-up of the financial records cases. Leah is a dear friend of this show, an assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan School of Law, and she's one of the founders of Strict Scrutiny, which is one of our favorite sister podcasts about the Supreme Court. And she's also a frequent contributor to pretty much every publication that you read, including this week's late. So Leah, it's great to have you back. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And I want to start uh, before we get to um, your newest uh, data crunching. I want to start with the just the two financial records cases that were argued last week at the Supreme Court. It was an off week for this podcast. Can you just sketch out as quickly as possible for listeners who are maybe not as read in as you are, uh, the issue that confronted the court and I think the biggest separation of powers case I've seen in a long time. Yes. So the separation of powers case involved the legality of several congressional subpoenas that were directed to financial institutions that maintain the president's financial records and the financial records of some of his children. Those subpoenas have been challenged on the ground 
that Congress doesn't have the authority to launch those particular subpoenas. And the cases involve two sets of arguments because you had the president's personal lawyers arguing on behalf of the president and then the Department of Justice participating as an amicus arguing on behalf of the institution of the presidency. The president's personal lawyers took the extremely broad position that essentially Congress can never subpoena the president because Congress needs to only subpoena when it is doing so in aid of legislation and Congress can never legislate qualifications on the office of the presidency. I think it was pretty clear that that particular position was not going to garner a majority of the votes. However, the Department of Justice's position was arguing for a slightly narrower one, um, which is at least with respect to the president or the office of the presidency, there needs to be uh, showing that Congress has a legitimate legislative purpose. And that argument, it is possible, might prevail. Um, it seemed like by the end of the argument, there were five justices who were skeptical of the House of Representatives' position that these subpoenas were valid. And so that seemed to be the way the argument went. Um, but of course, it's difficult to read too much into that. And that case was twinned with a case that raised some of the same issues, except this time it was the state of New York seeking to subpoena some of the same financial records. Yes. So the New York case involved a grand jury subpoena. And because that case did not involve congressional authority or really the separation of powers, but instead was more of a pure presidential immunity case that is more closely governed by cases like United States versus Nixon, which involved the Watergate tapes, or Clinton versus Jones, which involved the ability to sue the president civilly while the president is in office. Um, it seemed like a majority of the justices were more sympathetic to New York's position in that case. Am I right to say, Leah, that again in that case, Trump's lawyers took a much, much, much more extreme position than the Justice Department, which was, as you said, tagging in as amicus? Yes, absolutely. So in the New York case, they are arguing for what they call temporary presidential immunity. The Department of Justice, by contrast, their fallback position is something like, well, you need to make an extra special showing that you really need this particular information and can't get it someplace else or some version of that. Um, so in in both cases, the Department of Justice was essentially providing a fallback position uh, to the more extreme position advanced by the president's personal lawyers. And how much, I, I think you touched on this, but let's talk about it for a minute. How much of it in the congressional cases was, I heard in arguments, particularly from some of the conservative justices, a real kind of animus and antipathy to Congress, a sort of sense that uh, they were acting in bad faith, that these quests for documents, presumably for legislative purposes, was pretextual. There was a weird uh, sense in which I, I almost felt as though they were saying, look, this is just a regular president doing regular stuff, and this is just a particular really bad actor, uh, these House committees. Yes. So the president is fond of the phrase presidential harassment when it comes to any attempt to exercise any oversight over him, including when it comes from Congress. And that concept came up at argument several times. Justice Salito, in particular, used the phrase presidential harassment the most. Um, but the chief justice and the assistant to the solicitor general, Jeff Wall, also oftentimes fell back on this concern of, well, Congress might be harassing the president here. Their true purpose is only to expose wrongdoing. And so some of the justices and even the Department of Justice that was arguing for a less radical position than the president's personal lawyers seem to be very fixated on the notion that the real bad actor here is Congress rather than the president's, you know, secret potential financial entanglements with foreign governments. And, and you have... Two precedents, as you mentioned, both the Watergate uh, Nixon precedent and the Clinton uh, Paula Jones precedent that cut against the administration. What did the justices who want to make those go away do with those, I guess I should note, unanimous precedents? Yes. So the Department of Justice is taking the position that, well, in both cases, the court recognized that the president is special and we're arguing that the president is special. QED, we win. I think the problem with that oversimplification, well, there are several problems with it. Justice Kagan explored some. I'll identify a few more, is both cases definitively rejected the idea that the possibility that the president might be distracted 
or humiliated by subpoenas directed to him or civil litigation that is very embarrassing, that can't be sufficient to make the litigation or the subpoenas invalid. Additionally, the heightened showing in United States versus Nixon that was required in that case was because that case potentially implicated the office of the presidency and executive privilege. Here, it is personal papers that predated the president ever taking office. And so there's no claim besides really mental distraction or the possibility of embarrassment for how this could impede the president's ability to carry out his duties or make the office work. Um, but the justices who were sympathetic to the president's position seem to seize on the idea that both cases loosely stand for the idea that the president is special. Let's make him super special. <laughs> Leah, you suggested uh, earlier that one possibility is that Trump prevails in the case that has to do with the three congressional subpoenas, possibly loses in the New York grand jury subpoenas. I think there's another possibility, at least that I've heard floated, if the court's trying to find a way to sort of split the baby here, of just saying, oh, no, we're going to kind of create a new standard and refine the standard and kick this back uh, to the lower courts, effectively meaning that nothing gets resolved before the election. What's your view on the possibility that they just kind of put this on pause, as they have done historically with a lot of hot-button cases? I think that's very possible in both cases. And frankly, even if they straight up affirmed the Second Circuit decision and said this New York subpoena is totally valid, that information is never going to become public before the election, given the grand jury rules regarding secrecy. And so even a straight up affirmance doesn't mean that information is going to come out, at least in the grand jury subpoena case. And that is the case where it seemed like, you know, the president was on the more likely losing side. Although you're right, you know, some of the justices did seem to be floating the possibility of, well, how about we kind of create this new, slightly modified legal standard somewhere between New York and the Solicitor General's position and send it back. I think the problem with that and the reason why that might not happen is the Second Circuit opinion was written by Judge Katzman on the Second Circuit, who is insanely careful and thorough. And he really took care to note that the president had made no attempt to argue or show that there was any impediment undermining his ability to perform his duties aside from distraction. And so he basically already resolved the case under a hypothetical alternative standard that required you to balance the necessity of the information against the intrusion on the office. So it sounds like you're saying, and I think I agree, that the chance that with the stroke of a pen, the court allows the world to see these Deutsche Bank and Mazars and other financial records before the election are pretty close to zero. And I guess I would add the caveat that even if we could see them, we wouldn't know what to do to make of them anyway in time to be sort of any kind of decisive factor in November 2020. I think that that's completely right. Although Justice Alito seemed to harbor a conspiracy theory that all of the New York district attorneys were always on the phone with the New York Times and willing to leak this information at the drop of a hat. But that's also never going to happen despite his wild conspiracy theories. So I want to turn to your... Um, you did a, a really amazing uh, quickie study, and I should note that you wrote it up for Slate this week, uh, just reflecting on some of the trends in the telephonic arguments with the huge qualifier that you start with, which is that this is a, a small subset of cases that you're trying to derive conclusions from. But can you just describe to us sort of what it was you were looking for and how you tested your hypothesis? Yes, absolutely. So Supreme Court arguments are typically a free-for-all where any justice can speak whenever they would like. And the chief justice's role in that setting is to moderate when multiple justices try to speak at the same time. But in the court's telephonic arguments, the court used a different setting where each justice spoke in order of seniority. And in that format, the chief was in a position of policing each justice's compliance with rough time limits and ensuring that each justice kind of had the opportunity to speak um, for roughly the same amount of time if they wanted. And so I was interested in his kind of ability to carry out that goal. So what I did is I listened to all of the arguments on Audio Arguendo, which is a wonderful service that uses unedited arguments and 
makes them available via podcast. And so I listened to the arguments and marked the point at which each justice was allowed to begin their questioning period and when their questioning period ended, either by the chief justice or the justice themselves. And I marked all those times, calculated them, ran some averages, compared numbers across different cases. And that was, you know, kind of what I was looking for. And talk a little bit about, I think that one of your, at least from a gender perspective, one of your leaping off points was this 2017 study that kind of clocked gender and ideology and who was interrupted at the court. So I think start by by sort of laying that out and then unspool what you concluded um, this week. Sure. So the 2017 study was by Professor Tanya Jacoby at Northwestern, together with one of her former students, Dylan Schwears. And in a piece called Justice Interrupted, they studied a database of Roberts Court oral arguments through 2015, as well as some arguments from the Burger Court era and the Rehnquist Court era as well. And Based on that larger sample, they attempted to measure which justices get interrupted and which justices interrupt in the more freeform structure. And they concluded, based on that study, that gender plays an important role. Female justices are interrupted more frequently than their male colleagues. Their male colleagues interrupt female justices more than male justices. And it's not because they concluded the female justices are talking more. They also concluded ideology plays a role. Justices are more likely to interrupt justices with whom they disagree. Um, But the conservative justices are more likely to interrupt more liberal justices than the liberal justices are likely to interrupt the conservative justices. So I was curious whether that was also going to hold true Um, at least as it could in this new setting. Um, And I think in some respects it did. So, for example, the longest questioning periods that were given to justices, um, the three longest went to men. Two of them were Justice Alito. The other was Justice Gorsuch. And in fact, Justice Alito's longest questioning period was almost um, a minute and a half, over a minute and a half longer than the longest questioning period that was given to a female justice and a liberal justice, and that was Justice Kagan. Um, I also measured the total amount of time that the justices had in particular arguments that is adding up all of their different questioning periods. Here, too, the three longest total amounts of time in an argument went to men. Justice Kavanaugh had two of them, both in the presidential immunity cases, and Justice Alito had the other. And here too, Justice Alito's longest total amount of time was almost a full minute longer than the longest period given to a female justice or a liberal justice. So those were some of my high-level findings. Um, I do want to note, in some respects, the chief justice succeeded at being even-handed. If you calculate the average length of a questioning period across all of the arguments, the justices who spoke the most were Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan, followed closely by Justice Alito. Um, But I think that that even-handedness broke down some in the more ideological cases, in particular the contraception case and the presidential immunity ones. And Leah, I guess... You're describing two different phenomena. One is allowing some justices uh, to go long. The other is uh, cutting off some justices. And I guess they're slightly different. And uh, I understand that there's a, a sort of gender valence going on there. Did you have some sense, and, and I don't know if I heard this play out, but I'm curious that uh, the chief was cutting off liberal justices just as they were sort of coming to a whomping big conclusion or an important question? Or was it more just tick-tock, I got to move along? In other words, how, I, I don't want to say the word sinister, but how much was he deliberately allowing Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Gorsuch to arrive at some material moment, a kind of gotcha moment, and how much of it was just trying to be fair and not quite nailing it on the gender and ideology. 
I think it's honestly a combination of the two. So I measured how each questioning period ended, whether it was the chief or the questioning justice, and when it was the chief, whether the chief was interrupting an advocate, a justice, or waiting for the advocate to pause. And by and large, the chief justice interrupted an advocate or ended after an advocate concluded their remarks. But on 11 occasions, he interrupted other justices. And all 11 of those occasions were Democratic appointees. And Many of them occurred in the presidential immunity cases at what I think were, as you would describe, moments where the Democratic appointees were going in for a kill shot. So, for example, Justice Breyer is questioning the president's personal lawyer about whether, under his theory, all of the Watergate subpoenas would be unlawful. And that is the moment where the chief justice cuts him off. Or Justice Ginsburg is questioning the assistant to the solicitor general on whether, under his theory, um, Clinton versus Jones involved embarrassing litigation that would have distracted the president. There, too, the chief justice cut her off. And so I think it was a combination of the chief justice trying to police the time limits and giving Justice Alito a little bit more latitude on the time limits, which then led to giving the junior justices that follow Justice Alito additional latitude, um, but also cutting off the Democratic appointees in these extremely high stakes, ideologically salient cases where they were kind of getting a role. And the length of their questioning periods, again, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer came nowhere near, nowhere near in those cases, the length of the questioning periods given to Justice Kavanaugh in particular. So I guess before we wrap, I should ask, in your opinion, having looked at this really carefully, uh, you know, I think Mark Stern and I had some impressionistic sense that it didn't seem entirely fair. We missed the the flow of an oral argument that's a free-for-all, but by and large, more transparency, better, and we should continue telephonically, if not uh, have cameras in the court uh, as soon as we can. What's your takeaway? I also think having these live feed was great, um, but I do think the court needs to modify the format going forward. If it keeps this kind of seriatim format where it questions the advocates and orders of seniority, then I think someone other than the chief justice should keep time because clearly he wasn't able to fairly keep time while also participating in argument. Um, but an alternative would just be using their usual argument format over the phone. And I think that that might be preferable or at least worth trying. Leah Lippman is an assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School. She is one of the founders of the amazing Strict Scrutiny podcast and a frequent contributor to every single publication you're either reading or should be. Leah, thank you so, so much for your time. It was just a really smart first take on telephonic argument. Thank you. Thank you again for having me and for those kind words. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. And now uh, that promised pivot away from Supreme Court justices to global justice. The destabilization wrought by this current pandemic is, I think, showing in pretty stark relief how much we have to learn about the ways our legal regime intersects with the rest of the world and how questions about refugees, international treaties, the rule of law itself are actually transnational problems that do not stop, much as we may wish them to, at the United States border. So I knew exactly who I wanted to have that kind of conversation with. David Miliband is president and chief executive of the International Rescue Committee, a nonprofit humanitarian group based in New York. Founded in 1933 at the call of Albert Einstein, the IRC is at work in over 40 countries and over 20 U.S. cities delivering food and medical aid and education to people upended by conflict and disaster. 
After serving as British Foreign Secretary and then leaving UK politics, David came to the US to helm this massive refugee project. And as a result, he's had a front row seat to the ways in which global politics has responded to and exacerbated the refugee crisis through legal systems that have, I think he would say, failed to rise to the occasion and are now just floundering in the midst of a pandemic. I wanted to talk to him about this big big worldview, the rule of law around the globe, and what COVID has taught us about interconnectedness within the world and what he has come to call, quote, the age of impunity. David Miliband, welcome to Amicus. Thank you, Dahlia. I'm a big fan, so nice to be with you. And I wonder if before we get to the big, big, big picture, we can just start with you. Um, I'm British. I don't like talking fast- about myself. You've got to remember that. Well, that's why we're going to do the hard part first and get it out of the way. But I wonder if we can just briefly trace your path um, through uh, elected office, through parliament, to the IRC. And I, I think I just want to start on this note that you, I've heard you time and again talk about your parents uh, as refugees and how that has centered you throughout your life. When I wrote a a little book in 2016 um, about the refugee crisis called Rescue Refugees and the Political Crisis of Our Time, I was struggling for how to start the book. And then I was on a train to DC and I wrote this uh, line, which I think goes to the heart of your question. And it said, uh, the first refugees I ever met were my parents. Uh, Now, I didn't actually spend my childhood thinking of them as refugees. I knew they were foreign because my dad always had a bit of a foreign accent. Uh, He's no longer with us. And um, they had this extraordinary um, group of friends. Sorry if you can hear the remnants of homeschooling downstairs. That's just sort of part of the modern world that we uh, live in. Um, I I, I assure you that the squeals and the screams are only about being forced to do homework, nothing uh, extra legal uh, about it. Um, There was this great uh, sense that they'd rooted themselves in Britain, but they retained an international perspective. But I was born in 1965, which is a long time ago. But it's striking to think 1965 was only 20 years after the Holocaust. And so my parents were both refugees from the Holocaust in different ways. My dad came with his dad in 1940 from Belgium. Uh, My mum survived the Holocaust in Poland and came to the UK on her own as a 12-year-old in 1946. And they were both refugees, and I wouldn't be here if the UK had not admitted uh, refugees. And they did what many immigrant and refugee families try to do, I think, which is to shield their children from having to relive the traumas of their parents. So they didn't uh, spend my childhood telling me, look how lucky you are, if only you'd known how uh, terrible my childhood was. They, They spent their time just trying to support us. There were two two kids. And so um, I think it's only later in life that I, and and really when I came to think about this job at the International Rescue Committee, that the sense of closing a circle became clear. Um, I can't claim, I wouldn't claim that in my political life I'd kind of prioritized refugee issues. I, I didn't. I think when I was Foreign Secretary, I gave a lot of space for human rights issues, but it wasn't coming through a particular refugee lens. But I do think that, in fact, when I applied for the job to be the CEO of the International Rescue Committee, I said there were three reasons why I wanted the job. Uh, I like lists. So I just came in and I hit them between the eyes, three reasons. One, I said I thought that the question of how you deliver aid to people who are on the run from violence and conflict presented some of the most challenging public policy issues there was. How do you get education to girls in Afghanistan? How do you tackle sexual violence in Congo? How do you support uh, internally displaced people in Syria cross-border? How do you um, persuade local populations in Uganda or Jordan uh, or Bangladesh that they should allow refugees to get jobs? Those are hard public policy questions, and I was interested in them. Secondly, I said I thought the International Rescue Committee was a bit of a sleeping giant. I mean, you can't do better than being founded by Einstein, yet no one knew that it was founded by Einstein. And I thought that it needed to really play a distinctive role in the humanitarian space as an organization that wasn't a general anti-poverty organization. It's an organization focused on people whose lives, as we now define it, people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster. But thirdly, I said, look, my parents were refugees. And so there's a closing of the circle in me in a some kind of indirect way 
um, showing my recognition of what people did to help save my parents and by doing uh, some work uh, that supported people on the run today that I was recognizing that debt. It seems to me that at least a big part of your tenure at IRC has had you living in New York in the midst of a real American questioning of how it thinks about foreigners, travelers, refugees, uh, economic migrants. And I, I guess I think you must have this funny vantage having come to it later than so many Americans who sort of thought that the statue of liberty meant what we thought and the Emma Lazarus poem meant what we thought. Um, you come to this sort of dropped into the middle of a Trump, uh, Stephen Miller rewriting of American history to be unbelievably hostile to people who are migrating uh, for any reason, including not just economic reasons, but including unbelievable uh, violence and hardship. And I wonder if that vantage made it easier or harder for you to understand what for instance, the travel ban, which was passed the first week Trump was in office. Was that astounding to you? There's a bit of distance. I mean, but there are two aspects that have really um, not preoccupied me, but struck me while I've been here. One is, you know, I, when I arrived, I was told refugee resettlement is a bipartisan U.S. policy. President Reagan invited more refugees to come to the country than anyone else. And the hostility, which is a good word, the hostility of the administration to uh, the people that we're serving is very um, comprehensively and assiduously and consistently uh, articulated and promulgated. Uh, and secondly, this has been a time of enormous challenge to the idea of America as the leading country that is an exponent, is a, is a demonstration, is a poster child for the idea of a, the rule of law as the foundation of the republic. If you come from a constitutional monarchy, as I do, uh, parliament is sovereign and parliament can do anything um, except bind future parliaments. Because by definition, if a parliament can do anything, you can't bind a future parliament. But if you come from a constitutional republic, if you live in a constitutional uh, republic, then there's a body of rights and law that should be inviolable. And actually what we've seen is that they're not, and that the famed checks and balances of the American system that I learned about as a junior high school student in Newton, Massachusetts in 1977, and then saw as a, a graduate student in MIT in the late 1980s, that's under siege, I would say. Both those are focus, foci of political division. And... So that's been uh, quite striking to me because I don't feel it in my heart in the same way that you would. I'm not a citizen of the United States, so it's it's not quite the same kind of emotional blow to an image of one's own country. Um, but uh, I do see the country I came from, come from and the US and other liberal democracies are standing for something really important in the world. And so the fact that 113 countries since... 2006 have suffered democratic recession, quote-unquote, according to Freedom House, less free judiciary, less free elections, less free press, and that America is part of that story, albeit one starting from a high base, is very striking indeed. Now, um, I'm lucky. I, I don't have people saying, well, you know, what are you doing here? Um, but the, um, the sense of the country uh, turning on its own roots is quite an extraordinary thing to see. I don't know if this dovetails with your background in politics, but I do see this strain through a lot of your writing and your speeches and your thinking, this sort of profound mistrust of nationalism, governance by plebiscite, the new populism. Uh, I've read a lot of your critiques of Brexit, and I think of Trump and Trumpism. And I wonder if you've given up on government, or if you think that kind of constitutional government has lost its way. In other words, 
Is IRC a, a relief because at least you don't have to deal with the fact that government got stupid in your lifetime? No, no, I, I, I don't. I haven't given up on government. Um, it'd be more accurate to say politics gave up on me before I gave up on politics. And I don't believe you can have big social change without government. But the formula I give people, I say, if you want to have big social, economic, environmental, other change, you need three things. You need government leadership, you need business or NGO innovation, and you need mass mobilization. But you don't necessarily need them in that order. And at a time when governments are in retreat from big problems, then my narrative is that you need business and NGOs and civil society to mobilize to, to lead and or to, to come first. I don't buy these arguments that say, well, you know, we can tackle the environmental crisis without government regulation. We can we can defend the rule of law without uh, government. We can advance the rights of refugees without government. I don't, I'm not, I don't believe that. And so I think that um, what I would say is that if you're in government, you've got much more power than if you're uh, running an NGO, but you also face more obstacles to getting anything done. And so there's more room for entrepreneurialism in an NGO, albeit I've, I, I'm, I confess to... Uh, having been forced to, to, into this, it's not like I decided that I wanted out of politics before I lost elections that meant I wasn't in politics, if you know what I mean. So you're not saying that NGOs, big business, are rushing in to fill the voids uh, that government... Well, we're filling a void in leadership, yeah. but we're not going to be... We, we can't solve the problem without government. Maybe it's worth saying for people, the International Rescue Committee w works across the arc of crisis, from the war zone in Yemen or Somalia or Syria to the internally displaced who are in those countries but have fled from the fighting, to the refugees across the border to the third countries where refugees are finally integrating into society, like in the US. And the age of impunity I talk about is the retreat from not core values, although that as well, but retreat from core commitments that were instantiated in some of the international legal regime that grew up in the post-Second World War period. But I'm also struck that the age of impunity has gone along with this democratic recession. And so the, the age of impunity abroad is fueled, consistent with, aligned with, but I think fueled by um, democratic recession at home and a loss of soft power in democratic countries, which you're seeing in the COVID crisis. I mean, it's look, the message of the troubles that America is having dealing with its crisis at home is being used around the world to say, you see, democracy doesn't work. And so... I think that um, from my point of view, I come from a, a sort of centre-left position. In Europe, we'd say social democrat. I don't know if people know what that means in America. And all these words, progressive, liberal, they become so um, contested but or, or vilified. I say in a European context, look, the job of social democrats in the 20th century was defined as using the political rights that had been gained in previous centuries to argue for social and economic equality. What I say now is, that argument for social and economic equality remains an absolutely core job, but social democrats have to defend liberal democracy as well. And the defense and sustenance and renewal of uh, our liberal democracy, and you, you, you said, I mean, uh, I liked quoting Attlee and uh, Thatcher, two British prime ministers, re referendums are the refuge of dictators and demagogues. That's what we have to beware in the encroachment on the uh, strength of liberal democracy. So, so this is exactly why I... I wanted to talk to you. I, I heard you speak, my God, it feels like 520 years ago, David, but I think it was early 2020. And you talked about laws for suckers, which is also part of the age of impunity. And I wonder if you can deconstruct for me the connection in your head between the rule of law and the fact that we have now, in your view, I think, uh, replaced regimes in which the rule of law is paramount with regimes that for all sorts of reasons don't prize the rule of law and how that connects up to this almost contagion as you describe it where one government after another looks around at the world and says hey it's true the law is for suckers I, Let me I back into this because i'm trying to explain because i'm not saying the law is for suckers so no no okay. and, so um in northwest syria 85 health facilities have been bombed by a combination of the Syrians and the Russians. And that's clearly contrary to international law, international humanitarian law. Um, two men driving an ambulance for the International Rescue Committee were targeted by a Russian missile and killed. 
Um, so aid workers are getting targeted, also clearly contrary to international law, international humanitarian law. And so it's in that context that I um, coined the idea that we're living in an age of impunity. And impunity, of course, is not just the fact that people do illegal things, but that they get away with it. And in my head, we go from the impunity we see towards civilians caught up in war to military and commanders and politicians who are taking those decisions sure in the knowledge that they'll get away with it, so there's no accountability, to then say, well, that is a philosophy of the law is for suckers because the law exists, but I don't need to follow it. Now, we've then got a set of domestic trends, and we have to we have to be careful. Remember, Sudan has gone from being a dictatorship to being a representative government in the last six months. So we've got to choose what we're talking about carefully. But we have a, um, a fact that the majority of countries in the world have suffered democratic recession in the last 13 years, and that is in striking contrast to the period after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the rise of what was called the third wave of democratization in the 1990s and early 2000s. And I think that you can see that there are some advanced industrialized countries that are suffering this democratic recession. Those are countries like Hungary would be a very good example, extreme example in some ways. But in the European Union, which is a values-based organization, not just a geographically-based organization, And obviously, the challenge to the rule of law that you discuss on your podcast here in the United States, instantiated in too many measures to mention, and all of them very troubling, that is also evidence of people believing that they can flout the law and get away with it. And I think it's also important probably to have a codicil to this, flouting norms as well as flouting the law, because sometimes norms are embodied in laws, sometimes laws are embodied in norms. And sometimes norms provide an alternative to laws. And the US Constitution embraces that. Sometimes norms are stronger than laws, and sometimes laws are stronger than norms. And the danger at the moment is that norm breaking is free, but not illegal. But it's a fine line between norm breaking and law breaking, and then law breaking becomes more common. And that's doubly dangerous when those who sit in judgment about whether or not the laws have been broken are political players, not just independent jurists. The politicization of the judiciary that is part of the American system, after all, but uh, it was constrained by norms. Those norms have been broken. And you're now in a situation where the judgment about whether or not something is inside or inside or outside the line, that undermines the rule of law as well. I, I don't disagree at all that I think Americans have fallen prey to the conviction that things that are largely norms are law and that they're enforceable in some way. And that what we are now seeing is the corrosion and uh, the disintegration of norms. And I guess I'm still trying to tease out the contagion factor, David, that this happens, you know, as you say, it's happening in Russia, it's happening in Saudi Arabia. That's a very good point. I haven't addressed that at all. The contagion factor, I'm afraid, is not that America is copying others. But when America goes into retreat, others use that as an excuse. And so what you'll see is plenty of leaders of politicians around the world railing against journalists. They start by railing against, quote unquote, fake news, and they end up railing against journalists. You'll see People saying, well, look, America um, doesn't allow asylum claims, so why should we? The the contagion effect, this democratic recession over the last 13 years can't all be blamed on America. That'd be ridiculous. But um, we are seeing that in refugee and asylum policy, to take that as an example, that leaders who want to emulate some of the U.S. tactics will use the American example as an excuse. And this COVID crisis has led to a freezing of borders. There aren't any refugees coming into America at the moment. That doesn't mean people aren't desperate to come here. I mean, the the administration this week has said that um, fleeing for your life, fleeing and claiming asylum is no longer an essential reason to travel. Now, what could be more essential than fleeing for your life? And then the answer is, yeah, but not all of the people who are fleeing are fleeing for their life. And they say, well, that's what we've got. An independent process for assessing asylum claims is there to check. But if you are fleeing for your life or you think you are, my goodness, you should have a right to be having your claim efficiently and independently assessed. Can you talk a little bit about what COVID has meant for the work on the ground that you do? I mean, I, I again, I heard you speak in January. The work on the ground was pretty grim pre-COVID. Yeah, I mean, I was on the phone today. I was on the Zoom today with our 
team, actually it was yesterday morning in the Democratic Republic of Congo, not sometimes, sometimes the undemocratic Republic of Congo. And there are five ventilators in the whole of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And there are 100 million people in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's the size of Western Europe, literally, in geographical space. So what we say, there's a double emergency. There's a health emergency, because some of the underlying health conditions are comorbid in a dangerous way with COVID. There's an economic and social emergency because livelihoods are cratering, violence against women is rising. Those two emergencies are kind of powered by the third emergency, which is a total absence of government international policy. I mean, the International Rescue Committee has not received a penny from the US government in this uh, crisis. And so our teams on the front line are trying to do prevention, soap washing, hand washing, fever testing, isolation of people who've got fever or got COVID. And they're doing it with a one hand tied behind their back in conditions where if you get it and you need hospital treatment, your prospects are utterly grim. And um, we've been spared so far because the places we work are not sort of hubs of the global economy. I mean, they're they're isolated, but it's coming. I mean, there's 45 days for the first 5,000 cases in Pakistan, two days for the last 5,000 cases in Pakistan. Half of all Afghans tested now getting tested positive. And so what it means for us on the ground is that our staff are at risk and our first duty is to protect them, but also to do our job, we've got to protect them. We're trying to keep our health facilities going and we're trying to adapt our education, our child protection, our, our livelihoods work to be COVID-proofed. And that's um, that's easier said than done. One of the things that I've always found inspiring about the way you think is that you're very deft at saying, look, we know how to solve things. We know what to do for refugees. We know how these are not intractable problems. There's no public will to do what needs doing. And I wonder if you have a similar, um, I know what I would do if I had infinite dollars and infinite commitment from world governments. Do you have that kind of list right now? I I don't want to seem like I'm a know-all because I'm, I also will tell you what, about things I don't know. But as it happens, when it comes to infection prevention and control, we know what we're doing because we've done it on Ebola. I mean, when I was speaking to these DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo teams yesterday, we're still in 84 health centers in the eastern DRC um, fighting off Ebola. We've had 22 Ebola-free days, so they're trying to get to 42, which is the cutoff. Um, I mean, I think I do uh, know what, if you had infinite dollars, you'd really have a four-step uh, well, five-step plan, actually. One, you go gangbusters on prevention, including on combating fake news so that you're getting trusted information out, including the, the fever testing, the isolation centers. We're building them in Cox's Bazaar, the largest refugee camp in the world in Bangladesh. Uh, secondly, you uh, augment your primary healthcare structures. Uh, you don't try and send 10,000 um, ventilators to Congo. That's not going to do any good. But you do make sure that all the staff have PPE, that you've got oxygen, that you've got the other therapies that can help save lives. Thirdly, you mitigate the short-term collateral damage of the virus on livelihoods and on uh, violence against women by, uh, first of all, doing cash payments to people in need, because we know that effectively, if you had a universal basic income for refugees and displaced people, you'd do a hell of a lot of good. But you also put in place some of the women's protection, the safe spaces, etc., that we know make a difference. Um, the fourth thing you'd do is you would go on a massive adaptation program of the uh, wider uh, services that we provide so that the kids don't lose education and you don't lose the gains that have been made in education. And the fifth thing you do is you vow absolutely strongly that that you'll make sure the last 10 miles for the vaccine are, are covered sooner rather than later. And you, you say, look, we could easily be waiting 10 years for the vaccine to reach the kind of places that we work, but we're going to make sure we're not. We're, we're, we're going to do it within three for the sake of argument. Now, if you did those, you, you'd, need, you'd need a reasonable amount of dollars, but a fraction of the... Uh, trillions of dollars that are being pumped into Western economies. And so I, I think that there is a, a recipe here. Now, there's a bigger picture, though, and I, I, final part of it, so apologies for the long answer. That's all short-term reaction. You also then have to say, hang on, there's a bigger global lesson here. And the global lesson, I think, is blindingly obvious. The holes in the safety net domestically and the holes in the safety net internationally 
are not just a threat to the people who are stuck in those holes. They are a threat to the functioning of the global economy and society. So in the same way that the American workers who have no paid medical leave and therefore don't dare not go to work even though they're feeling a bit iffy and thereby threaten to spread the disease, they're matched by people internationally who are going about their work who have no access to the kind of health facilities that we have here and end up spreading a uh, virus that does spread internationally as well as locally. And so you've got, for reasons of head as well as heart, you've got to vow that the next 10 years are about filling the holes in the global safety net. And that's a big project that takes multilateral agencies, much more than aid projects, it takes national governments, it takes a ceasefires that Anthony Guterres, the UN Secretary General, has been calling for. That would mean that we'd got a flying chance of hitting those sustainable development goals for 2030 rather than being miles off track, which is where we are at the moment. So I remember early in the pandemic when there was this very aspirational line of journalistic pieces. I might have penned one or two myself, David, that said this thing that you have just identified will be the lesson of COVID, that it has peeled away uh, the vulnerabilities in, you know, the American capitalist project. It has peeled away international vulnerabilities. We've all figured out, we're going to understand that there are not boundaries to states within the United States. There are not boundaries between country. The whole world is interconnected. We rise and fall together. These luscious post-World War II lessons that we have somehow failed to internalize in 2020. Um, I'm not sure we're learning that. And I wonder if you have any hope that this global retreat that you've described when we first started talking can be reversed by, I mean, this seems like an amply illustrative moment in which to say, hey, David's been right all along. We are connected to each other and we can't uh, hive ourselves off and build moats. Well, there's a contest, isn't there? And the contest, you, you can see it here. The contest is, do you blame the global system for the pandemic or do you blame the mismanagement of the global system for the pandemic? And that's a contest. Now, the trouble is, that there's not enough people making the counter position to the argument that it's everyone else's fault, not ours. I mean, the truth is, if you look at the death rates in the UK, the US, um, Brazil, um, the politics of grievance has very few answers to the dangers of COVID. So there is a resort to a, a blame game. And I would say to people, it's a contest. I've actually written about this in The New Statesman. I wrote about what I call the four contests of the post-COVID world. They're about um, the global system, whether it's to blame or, in fact, too weak, which is my argument. Um, the, the World Health Organization, in my view, is, is too weak, not too strong. It's about secondarily, this, the, the, the post-COVID world is a secondary about a, a contest about democracy, back to where we started, because you're going to have a lot of people saying, oh, these autocratic regimes seem pretty good at uh, handling the, the crisis, and they'll be saying it themselves because they want their number one priority is to justify their own position. It's a contest about privacy, which isn't really. I don't know enough. I don't know. You, you can get much better people to talk about that on your podcast. But you know, do you trust Google with your information? Do you trust government with your information? Uh, what are these apps to um, enforce social distancing? The thin end of the wedge, or are they uh, actually? Um, can they be controlled? And then the fourth of these intersecting, they're four intersecting contests. The fourth, which underpins the rest, is about global inequality and national inequality. Because we've lived in a period where inequalities within countries have grown, but inequalities between peoples have diminished. So the global 7.5 billion people are less unequal than they were 20 years ago, largely because of the rise of China, but not only because of that. And national inequalities, as you see in this country, have got much bigger. Now, the national inequalities have got bigger, actually, mainly because of, well, a lot to do with domestic tax policy. But nonetheless, that debate is, is, a, uh, is a significant part of this uh, post-COVID equation, if, if and when we get to it. And I, I would say to you, it's a contest, this. And the contest is won in a, as much in the analysis as in the prescription. The politics of grievance wins through its diagnosis and never having to come up with any answers. And 
Um, so in this case, it will be, well, it's all the Chinese fault. And so we should bash the Chinese. Now, my position is, well, the Chinese are at fault. But actually, as the South Koreans have shown next door to uh, China, the fact that China got it wrong didn't mean that South Korea needed to have a massive death rate. Whereas the US, far further away with much more time, has calamitously ended up with 100,000 people already dead. So I think it's a very um, pregnant moment, if you know what I mean. And there aren't enough politicians who are willing to make the internationalist case. And I'm struck that business is pretty quiet, actually. Doesn't want to put his head up. And civil society, look, we always have to, we, I always say charity begins at home. I understand that the first duty of people is to their own families, their own communities. But charity shouldn't end at home. And that's the point of that we have to address coming out of this crisis. And is there... In your, you know, I, I'm struck that as I'm talking to you, there is a, a filament, at least, of American public sentiment that's beyond just we're blaming others, but is actually sort of lashing itself to some, I think, fantastical and cartoonish notion of individual rights and constitutional, you know, the constitutional right to be unmasked. Uh, and And really, I think deformed notions of what freedom means. Uh, and there is this raging debate, uh, at least in journalism land, about whether we are disserving the project you're describing, this kind of project of lifting each other up, by focusing attention on a handful of people who have very distorted ideas about liberty or freedom. I guess I'm, I'm trying to ask a question about messaging, uh, which is that I think we're so in love uh, with certain stories in the United States about cowboys and rugged individualism and freedom, that we we want to tell that story even when it completely is belied by the facts on the ground that require cooperation. So I'm just wondering if that's a uniquely American pathology or if that's something that's happening around the world. Well, it's a strange version of, of the old debate about whether you have the right to cry fire in a crowded theatre, isn't it? Um, and uh, whether you have the right to get get yourself to, to, to take risks that you'll get COVID and in the process take the risk that you'll give COVID to someone else. Uh, I think that I'm not the right person to... I'm, I'm not a sort of media... Um, person but uh, you know I'm not a media executive I think that um, I still have that old politicians um, uh, Harold Wilson said this that he was a prime minister of Britain in the 60s he said uh, sailors shouldn't complain about the sea and politicians shouldn't complain about the media and so I still have a bit of that at the back of my head but I am struck how you don't really have news programs in this country um, it's quite peculiar really that there is still in European societies a news program. And, you know, we're obviously not living in the age of Walter Cronkite anymore. But, and people watch news and consume news in different ways. But news and the notion of facts that underpin it provide the basis for a common conversation and they provide a basis for a divergence of opinion and judgment. But when there's no such thing as the truth, when there's no such thing as a fact, when who says something tells you whether or not it's true before you even know whether or not it's investigated, that's that's cor that's the corrosive. That's that's dangerous. We've washed up on the rocky shoals where every episode of Amicus ends up, which is how do we get people to believe in institutions and in knowable truth and in immutable law? So I'm going to ask you, having brought us there uh, <laughs> due to my stupid question, um, what gives you hope in this moment? Oh, well, look, the only thing you can, I mean, I've got an easy answer to that, which I'm afraid I use in many uh, quarters and uh, I hope it doesn't sound glib. I think it's actually quite profound. Um, but this film crew went to the Democratic Republic of Congo and they said, uh, if you look at the statistics, you're depressed. If you look at the people, you've got hope. And so people say to me, well, um, you're, you're carrying the IRC forward. I say, no, they're carrying me forward. And while the people that we serve have got courage, resilience, humor, um, ambition, hope, uh, what right have we got to give up? So I think that's the point. But I think there is a there's there's something dark that needs to be addressed, which is that there's real there's real struggle ahead to defend gains. The notion 
of this, uh, the, the, the Whig theory of history that you always made progress, that's really under challenge now, really under challenge. And I think the contest to defend the norms and laws, to go back to our earlier part of our conversation, that have been built out of struggle and endeavour and sometimes conflict, that's really important. And that needs to unite people, whether they come from the political left or the political right. I mean, the political left has got to, it's slightly ironic, we, we, those of us on the political centre-left, we've got to be conservative about some institutions and norms. And um, those on the right, I think, have to understand that you'll not be able to defend them unless everyone has a stake in them. And that means taking on the inequalities that have grown so aggressively in the last period. So I think that's a big, big project. And I'm afraid, you know, you're younger than I am, but I think for the rest of our lives, this project about how you advance liberal democratic goals in the and how you advance liberal democracy as as a as a way of government is absolutely defining. And that's why I'm not a lawyer, but these issues of um, impunity, accountability, and the dynamic between them is so important. David Milband is president and chief executive of the International Rescue Committee, a nonprofit humanitarian group based in New York that was founded in 1933 at the call of Albert Einstein. The IRC is at work in over 40 countries and 20 U.S. cities delivering food, medical aid, and education to folks who've been upended by conflict and disaster. David, this has been while sobering, uh, an incredibly useful conversation to help, uh, I think, refocus me on what it is we're trying to do next. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was fun to do it. And I hope everyone goes to visit the International Rescue Committee website, www.rescue.org. Including world leaders and businesses. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Hang on in there.